Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation that I'm going to have with Professor Brad Wilcox from the University of Virginia. He is an expert on the importance of the family and family formation and how the formation and structure of the family contributes to child development. And he has just released an amazing study that shows, based on data, the importance of fathers in not just children's lives and in families, but in society as a whole. You are going to learn so much from him. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. So we are going to get straight into it. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us. First, can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a professor of sociology, University of Virginia, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Awesome. And I want to talk to you about this new study that recently came out about fathers, about sons. You've talked about this subject for a long time. I've used your research, actually, in some of my writing for World Magazine. But before we get into it, can you tell us kind of how you got to the position that you're in now. I didn't know until a couple years ago that there was this institution, this program at the University of Virginia. Some people are going to be surprised by that, that in liberal academia, that people are even studying this subject. So tell us how you got here, why this interests you, and maybe a little bit of the history of this program at UVA. Yeah, so I got interested in these issues actually as an undergraduate here at the University of Virginia. I kind of came to the realization as someone who was raised in a single uh, mother household that uh, dads were important and that marriage was an institution that kind of connects dads on average to their kids. And uh, then said about to study family at the at Princeton University in sociology, got a PhD at Princeton, and then came back here to teach at the University of Virginia. Uh, and then in 2009, brought the National Marriage Project from Rutgers University, where it was led by David Papano and Barbara DeFoe Whitehead, to UVA. And since then, the National Marriage Project has sponsored a number of reports and conferences and lectures here at UVA to kind of spotlight the important role that marriage and stable families play in the lives of kids, communities, and our country at large. It's kind of the, the quick uh, story behind my work on marriage and family life. Well, I'm so glad that this program exists. This is something, of course, that conservatives have been talking about for a long time, the deficit of fathers in the country and how that leads to all kinds of social ills. It seems to be something, at least from our perspective, that many in liberal academia really don't want to touch or in liberal media, liberal institutions. They don't want to talk about the problem of fatherlessness, how that leads to idle young men, sometimes delinquent young men and young people. Why do you think that is? Why Why do you think that you are kind of a rarity or this program is kind of a rarity in academia? That's a great question, Ali. I mean, I think what's you know striking when you look at the data is how often family and marriage emerges as the number one predictor of things that occupy our public conversation. Um, and yet family is kind of cast to the side. So, for instance, when you look at the work of Raj Chetty at Harvard, uh, what he finds is, is the number one predictor of mobility for poor kids in communities across the U.S. You know, rags to riches, mobility, where they're going from poverty is, 
as kids to um, being successful as adults is not, it's not race, it's not school spending, it's not inequality, it's two-parent families in a community. It's kind of one example. Um, in our recent brief that you just, I think, mentioned, we find that a family structure is a better predictor of incarceration, of being in prison or in jail uh, for young men than is race or family income growing up. So family is a huge factor um, in, you know, in our lives, our kids' lives, our country's lives. And you know, it's often the elephant in the room. It's the sort of family elephant in the room. I think people are reluctant to talk about family for a couple of reasons. I think one of those reasons is that, you know, all of us make mistakes. All of us have, you know, family members who've made mistakes when it comes to marriage and family life. So there's kind of like a reluctance, I think, to sort of broach the issue um, in part for fear of offending people um, who've made mistakes on the family front. Um, I think a second reason that it is sort of swept to um, the side is that a lot of progressives would prefer to focus on what they call structural issues. You know, things like poverty, things like inequality, uh, things like racism that are kind of, from their perspective, easily addressed with public policy, um, you know, solutions that don't require people making changes in their own personal lives. I think that's the second reason why you know, this is a this is a challenge for us. And the third thing that I would say is there's been a kind of progressive commitment undergirding uh, academia, you know, for many, many years now. And this progressive commitment tends to kind of embrace family change as kind of an intrinsic good, that every single change that sort of washed over American family life since the 60s is is good for us and, and our country. And that we should not in any way kind of reconsider a lot of steps we've taken on the family front. So I think that sort of progressive assumption is also a big reason that undergirds why we have difficulty in talking about the importance of stable marriage and of even fathers uh, in our kids' lives. Well, I've heard you say before that progressives kind of have the idea that the only thing that kids need is love and money. And as long as they have that, it doesn't matter if they're raised by a single mom. It doesn't matter if they're raised by two moms or cousins or whatever it is. They kind of have this idea that, you know, this coalition of people can raise a child and that child will be fine as long as their basic needs are met. But does the data show that? Is that true? That kids who grow up with just some kind of love and some kind of money um, end up just as well or just as stable as the kids who are raised with both a mom and a dad? Yeah, that's right. I think what I've been talking about kind of is family diversity theory. And it's this idea, again, as you just put it, that, you know, all that kids require is, um, is love and money and the family form, family structure doesn't really matter for kids. And yet when you actually look at the data, what you see is that um, kids are much more likely to be flourishing when they're raised in an intact biological married family with their own you know, mother and father. Um, and we see this when it comes to incarceration, when it comes to college graduation, when it comes to uh, depression. Um, and there's just no question that, you know, on average, uh, kids benefit from a stable married uh, household. So that's what sort of the research tells us. And what I would kind of go on to add is that I don't think progressive scholars really appreciate journalists as well, that even when it comes to love and money, um, kids are more likely to have more money in a stable married household, you know, that's accessible to them. And they're more likely to get the love of both of their parents, you know, more attention, more affection, more consistent discipline when they're being raised by their own stably married parents um, compared to the alternatives. So even kind of on its own terms, kind of the family diversity theory breaks down because, again, it doesn't appreciate how much 
um, having you know that strong stable family that stable family on the home front actually delivers uh, more money to kids and more love to kids as well okay quick pause to tell you guys about good ranchers you guys know good ranchers sends you american meat right to your front door we're talking high quality stuff ethically raised sustainably sourced on dry ice right to your front door they've got different cuts of steak they've got chicken pre-marinated non-pre-marinated they've got seafood we love good ranchers in the stucky household i mean we eat it almost every night I'm a huge fan of things that make my life easier. And the fact that it tastes good and that it's all from American farms and ranches, that just that just seals the deal for me. Also, though, they've got another thing going on that I know specifically relatable listeners are going to love. With every order, with every box of meat that you purchase, Good Ranchers is sending food to kids in need. So we are talking about children who often go unfed or end up malnourished from poor access to nutritious food. And now you can join their campaign of feeding these kids by ordering a box of 100% American meat. Giving back never felt or tasted so good. Let's help them hit and pass their goal of 100,000 meals donated. Go to goodranchers.com slash or use my code Allie at checkout. Claim your offer of $30 off. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. I don't know if you're able to assess this, but why do you think? Why do you think kids are typically better off and have better outcomes when they are raised by their biological mom and dad? No matter their socioeconomic background, no matter if mom and dad are rich or not, as you're saying, they are typically better in that kind of structure, in that kind of home versus a single mom who maybe makes more money than the mom and the dad over here. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think it's about a couple of things. It's partly about the fact that, you know, on average, you have two parents. um, And today, you know, um, either you have, you know, both parents bringing in income um, and they're going to be much more likely to kind of allocate that money towards their kids if both of those kids are their biological children. Um, and when you've got one stay-at-home parent, you, you have the other parent who's typically working that much harder to kind of bring in money for, um, you know, his his spouse. And this gets it's usually you know, the father who's doing that. So, um, so that's part of the financial picture. It's also important to know financially that they're not kind of paying the costs of family instability. And that's things like obviously child support, things like keeping two households, you know, going with, you know, kids going back and forth, you know, selling uh, a family home if there's a divorce. So family stability is, is linked to having a better financial uh, foundation underneath kids. It would be part of the story. Um, when it comes to just sort of the sort of social and emotional side, um, you know, kids are getting, you know, more attention um, from their two parents. Um, biological parents tend to be more invested in their kids and step parents and, and boyfriends and girlfriends. So they also benefit from having, you know, that parental presence in the household. Um, two parents who are biologically related to the kids are less likely to sort of lose their temper um, with their own biological kids compared again to step parents, boyfriends, and girlfriends. So it's a safer household. Um, for kids on average um, than one where there's cohabiting parents or, you know, step parents of one sort or another. Um, and then in terms of just thinking about the, um, the sort of 
mobility issue. What we see is that kids who are raised in non-intact families tend to be more likely to be having to travel between apartments and homes, um, whereas kids who are raised by their unstably married parents are much more likely to stay in, in one home and in one neighborhood. And if you have kids, if you babysat kids, if you taught kids, you know they thrive on stable routines with stable caregivers. And the intact married family is much more likely to deliver stability, not just in the household, but even kind of in that neighborhood context compared to the alternatives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you can see how those who are more driven kind of by ideology within what the data shows really are uncomfortable with that fact. Because if you if your number one value is tolerance, you talked about that family diversity theory or acceptance of any new form of family or any new form of lifestyle or behavior, then really everything else is secondary. Everything else kind of has to submit to that number one value, even the well-being of kids. There is this book that recently came out by a woman named Sophie Lewis, and you know she's a professing communist, and she's written a lot of stuff that I consider crazy, but her latest book is called Abolish the Family. Of course, she believes that the family, the mom-dad-child structure, is a tool of the oppressive patriarchy, and that children should really be liberated from the oppression of their family. And that's kind of an idea, this anti-hierarchy at all costs idea that comes from the left, you can kind of see how that would apply if that's your idea to the family. But liberation is not something that is achieved for children, whatever that even means, when there are no parents involved. I mean, you talked about the importance of that biological connection. I mean, what would that what would that look like? I know that that's not really on the horizon, the true abolition of the family. But what are some of the consequences for kids if they are raised in a society that really doesn't value that family structure and really does just say anything goes? Yeah, I think what we're seeing in part is there's a move on the left to kind of replace the family as a core institution with the state, right? And to have the state take a bigger role when it comes to things like, you know, daycare, providing, you know, publicly provided daycare, for instance. Um, would be kind of a, an example here, or, or even too now, unfortunately, kind of sort of seeing public schools kind of given their own power to sort of shape the moral ethos, you know, um, and orientation of our kids as well, kind of just displace what the parents would like to see happening, you know, in their own public schools, in their own you know, in counties, cities, uh, and towns across America. So this kind of statist orientation is an expression of of the kind of viewpoint you were just articulating, um, although the one you just articulated was pretty extreme. But I think another point to make here is what's striking about uh, you know, our elites often is how much they talk left when it comes to family, but walk right, or how they're kind of supporting a more progressive agenda you know, in the um, companies that they lead or in the public initiatives that they champion in state houses across America or in the halls of Congress as well. Um, and yet again, on the home front, they're often kind of living a fairly um, traditional lifestyle. And as my colleagues and I looked at this um, in California, for instance, in a report we called State of Contradiction. And we found in California was that college educated elites in California were much more likely to embrace publicly family diversity theory. And yet in private had plans to you know, marry before having kids. And again, on the home front, we're much more likely to be stably married than their fellow Californians. So this is kind of one example of how elites in California end up talking left and walking right. And we found even in the heart of Hollywood, 
that there were uh, a few neighborhoods uh, running right through the heart of Hollywood that had exceptionally high rates of two-parent families. And you can imagine sort of the showrunners, the producers, the executives um, living in those neighborhoods, kind of sitting in the hills of Hollywood, uh, probably are, you know, producing shows and uh, behind, um, you know, videos, music videos that send a very different, um, you know, message to the, to the American public. Right. The content that they are producing is telling America that all forms of family life are equal, no matter the family setup or who's taking care of the child. And yet they're not actually living that way, which would maybe speak to the fact that they don't actually believe that. I mean, I'm sure that they would say that they believe that the diversity of families is a good thing for society. But if they really believed it, would they be leading this pretty conservative lifestyle? It, it doesn't seem that way. So what are the ramifications of that? You're preaching a particular message to average America who is watching Netflix, whatever, they're taking it in and they're thinking, well, I'm going to be just as well if I decide to have kids before I get married. Cohabitation is just as good as getting married. Marriage is just a piece of paper. I mean, that's what we've been hearing for a long time. Not to mention the redefinition of marriage and family is two women, two men, whatever it is. And so, like, what are the ramifications of that? And I guess, why do you think that is? Like, why is there that state of contradiction between, I know these are two different questions, between the people who live a certain way and are communicating another message to everyone else? Uh, why Why would that be the case? Why wouldn't they just yeah, be so consistent? Is, right. This is what I call inverted hypocrisy on the part of our, our elites. Again, they're talking left about family, walking right in practice oftentimes. And I think, how do we explain this and why is it important? Well, I think you explain it. Um, by, you know, sort of underlying the fact that they sort of have some kind of prudential, some kind of tacit understanding that both they, their spouse, and especially their kids are more likely to flourish. I mean, they kind of probably at some level know that if they kind of live um, the lifestyle that they're preaching to the broader public, you know, it would often be ruinous for their kids. And my own research indicates, you know, released in the last week and a half that young adults, young men actually, who are raised in non-intact families are more likely to, you know, not go to college, not graduate from college, more likely to end up in prison or in jail, more likely to be idle as 20-something young men. And so at some level, you know, these smart people realize that, you know, stable marriage is good for them and their kids, and they act in the private sphere accordingly. Now, the problem, of course, is that they know they're supposed to be signaling, uh, they're supposed to be signaling in public their allegiance to a very progressive, um, you know, commitment about family issues and to embrace family diversity theory in public. That's what's going to get them status at work. That's what's going to kind of, you know, get them plotted among their peers and all this kind of stuff. So they have a kind of progressive uh, public uh, facing ideology often because that's, you know, what's demanded of them in their roles as CEOs or as journalists or professors or school superintendents. That's that's the kind of challenge there. And this is problematic, right, because in the institutions that they control, whether it's, you know, Hollywood companies producing movies and TV shows, or whether it's school superintendents kind of, you know, pushing forward a certain kind of viewpoint in the classroom, they're sending a message to ordinary young adults, to our kids, to our teenagers, that is, you know, one that doesn't underline the importance of marriage and that often underlines the idea that, as you said, you know, anything goes when it comes to family. And so it's problematic insofar as they're advancing a cultural ethos and message that undercuts the values and virtues that are that are you know required to, to forge a good and stable marriage today in America. 
Okay, I love telling y'all about Carly Jean Los Angeles. I was getting my nails done the other day, and the girl who was doing my nails, she was like, hey, I love your outfit. Where did you get it? And I was like, well, everything I'm wearing is from Carly Jean Los Angeles. So I wrote down the website for her and I gave her my promo code. Everywhere I go, people are like, where'd you get that outfit? And it's always Carly Jean. I am wearing Carly Jean Los Angeles right now. This blue dress is from them. Their entire basics line is made in America. That is hard to find. It's also hard to find a women's clothing company that actually supports the values that you and I have. A lot of these clothing companies that we like, they're turning around and using our dollars to support something like Planned Parenthood. You don't have to worry about that with Carly Jean Los Angeles. Carly Jean is a Christian and she holds the same values that you and I do. So I just feel really good about supporting them and I legitimately love their stuff. Well made, super cute, works in every season of life. Go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com and use promo code AllieBasic. That works on their American Made Basics line. You'll get 20% off your first order of USA Made Basics. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com promo code Basic. Let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the study. Life without father, less college, less work, and more prison for young men growing up without their biological father. The decline of marriage and the rise of fatherlessness in America remain at the center of some of the biggest problems facing the nation. Crime and violence, school failure, deaths of despair, and children in poverty. The percentage of boys living apart from their biological father has almost doubled since 1960. 17% then to 32% today, there are about 12 million boys who are growing up in families without their biological father. They are twice as likely to graduate college by their late 20s versus those without a biological dad. So young men with a biological dad are twice as likely to graduate college than those raised without. Young men who are idle, so not working or going to school, is almost double when there is no biological father. And I've said this before. I'm not saying this is what you say in in your study in particular, but I've said there is nothing more dangerous than a man with no purpose, with nothing to live for, to with no one to live for. There is really nothing more dangerous than an idle man, really an idol anyone, but especially a man. That's another topic that it seems like progressivism doesn't really want to cover, that there is this inherent difference. There is a difference in the innate drives of men and women. Yes, we all need purpose. We all need to know why we're here, what we're doing, and to be productive. But a man without a good fight to fight and a good thing to fight for is very dangerous. And so this number in particular scares me and makes a lot of sense to me that young men without dads are more idle. Well, they're going to be doing something with their time, which to me would be the reason why they typically end up delinquent. They typically end up, you know, in situations of violence. Was there anything about this study, whether it's some of the stats that I just listed or any other parts of the study that you found that actually surprised you after being kind of um, in this industry and studying this for so long? Not exactly, Ali. I mean, I don't think I uh, was particularly surprised. I, I mean, it, it is striking, though, how large, for instance, I mean, as you mentioned, we do find there's a marked increase in risk of idleness and incarceration for young men who are being raised uh, without their fathers in the household. But 
it was striking to me looking at the college trends. I mean, we just saw a big Wall Street Journal article, I'm sure you talked about it earlier in the last year, that kind of chronicled this growing gap in our colleges uh, between men and women. We're headed now to a world where about 60% of college students are female, about 40% are male. So a big gender divide in college uh, colleges in America. And what we see here in this research is that 14% of young men who grow up without their fathers are graduating from college compared to 35% um, of young men who are graduating from college when their dad's present in the household. This is a large gap. And that was actually surprising how large it was. And it does suggest to me that part of the story in terms of understanding this growing gender gap in American colleges is that young men are coming from homes without you know, their dad to be a model for hard work, to kind of help them with homework, to kind of give them some guidance about how to navigate school and, and college. These young men are the ones who are particularly likely to be absent from our nation's campuses. And this is problematic in part, of course, because men who don't graduate from college today are more likely to be floundering <clears throat> in our labor markets and then also to be much less attractive as husbands, you know, later on as well. So um, the sort of education story here was was kind of striking to me. Yeah. So it's not like these young men are not going to college, but they're starting these successful businesses. They're becoming entrepreneurs. They're being productive in other ways. They're often falling into the idleness that can then kind of have a domino effect on the rest of their life and inhibit success in other ways. Right. Although, of course, I think probably as you would appreciate, you know, one idea that I've been thinking about a lot you know, lately is this idea that we need to be doing a lot more to strengthen vocational education, to sort of recognize and appreciate that a lot of guys need not go to college to flourish. The problem is we don't have programs in most, you know, towns and cities that would do that. Right, right. Yeah, I certainly don't think that going to college is going to be the answer for male flourishing in the United States. I think it's the problem of the absence of alternatives, that when they're not going to college, they're also not, um, they don't have a leg up on life is kind of is what you're talking about here. All right, last sponsor for the day, and that is Relief Band. So I happen to know that I've got a lot of pregnant moms in my audience. Maybe you're in the throes of first trimester nausea, or maybe you're not pregnant and you're just nauseous every time you turn on the news because of where our country is headed. In that case, you need Relief Band. This is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. It was developed over 20 years ago um, to relieve the nausea in chemo patients, and now it's been used by thousands thousands and thousands of people who struggle with nausea. My sister-in-law, she's always gotten motion sickness, especially when she's in the car for a long period of time. And Relief Band has been a huge help to her. You don't have to worry about any side effects. You don't have to worry about taking medicine. You're not sure if you want to take it because of uh, different effects that it could have. You don't have to worry about that with Relief Band. All it does is stimulates a nerve in your wrist that tells your brain to then tell your stomach to not be nauseous. It's really awesome technology and it really works. So go to reliefband.com. Use my promo code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. That's R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Use my promo code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. Reliefband.com code Allie. 
Some other statistics, the percentage of young men who have been arrested by the ages of 15 to 19 is higher among kids without a biological dad in the home than with a biological dad in the home. And the percentage of young men who have spent time in jail by around age 30 is double among boys who grew up without biological dads than with biological dads. America's young man problem is disproportionately concentrated among the millions of males who grew up without the benefit of a present biological father. The bottom line, both these men and the nation are paying a heavy price for the breakdown of the family. So what would you say needs to be done? Because we all see, I mean, we all see that one commonality in these mass shooters, horrific, is that they're typically young men. A lot of times they come from broken homes or different kinds of broken backgrounds. That was certainly true in Uvalde. He didn't have a present dad in his life. We see the epidemic of violence that happens among predominantly young men, particularly, unfortunately, black young men. Everyone sees that. And very few people seem to be pointing to this problem and trying to come up with policy solutions or any kind of cultural solutions, whatever, to fix this problem. So in your ideal world, like if you were put in charge for a day, a year, whatever it is, and said, okay, this is what we need to do to fix this problem, what would you propose? Yeah, great question. I think one thing that we need to do is to really look at this as a cultural challenge, as you can appreciate. And that means thinking about ways in which, you know, schools across America can introduce um, curricula, for instance, that spotlight the value of marriage uh, for young adults and for their kids. Um, one idea is called the success sequence, where you talk about the importance of getting at least a high school degree, uh, then working full time in your early 20s, um, and then marrying before having kids and kind of just telling young adults, if you do these three simple steps related to education, work and marriage, your odds of being poor are just 3% and your odds of getting into the middle class are higher are 86%. So it's kind of a pathway to help young adults sort of avoid poverty and establish strong and stable families uh, for themselves and any kids that they have. So that's sort of one idea is talking about the success sequence in public schools and also running public campaigns in you know states across America that are supportive of marriage and family. A second policy idea is to address the marriage penalties in our welfare programs, you know, things like Medicaid, for instance, and the Earned Income Tax Credit. These programs often penalize marriage in substantial ways, particularly for working class couples with kids. And Congress has actually addressed marriage penalties and income taxes, which fall higher, you know, on higher earning Americans. But Congress has not addressed these um, marriage penalties in our welfare programs. And can and should go forward in addressing you know these uh, these penalties those are kind of two ideas that we could think about on both the cultural front and the policy front to make marriage um, both kind of i think more attractive um, and less in this case financially uh, problematic for precisely the group of folks who are most likely to be struggling with marriage today and that is working class and uh, and poor americans well it's certainly an uphill climb we don't seem to be going that direction, especially with how young people seem to think about marriage, seem to think about that kind of commitment, seem to think about having kids, and that diversity of family theory seems to be really popular, especially among young people. And certainly the progressive ideology that we've kind of described, especially as it pertains to the family, seems to dominate most institutions, at least in what they are conveying to the public. As you said, they're kind of conveying the message to the left and walking right themselves. And yet that message is so impactful. The ramifications of that, I think, I mean, we've seen what they are over the past 
60 years. Um, and so I'm thankful for what you're doing. Data matters. Statistics make a difference. They can change people's mind. I like to say that the truth is like a beach ball. You can keep on with ideology or your desires or your personal preferences, try to push it underwater. Eventually, it's going to pop back up. Right now, the reality of the need for fathers is popping up and the prevalence of violence and idleness among young males. Um, and so I'm thankful to you for highlighting that. I'm thankful to UVA uh, for having you there and um, uh, allowing you to study this and publish these studies. So thank you so much, Dr. Wilcox. I really appreciate what you do and the time that you've spent talking with us today. Thanks, Alex. Good to be with you today.